0: Well, today is, as you've noticed, Ascension Sunday, one of my very favorite days on the church calendar. The ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father is one of the central, and yet I would posit one of the most neglected, or at least a neglected reality in the Christian faith. That it is central, I don't think anyone denies. We could see the centrality. The, the, you know, the capital importance of the ascension from the simple fact that it's enshrined along with just a small handful of truths in the ancient and universal creeds and confessions of the church. In the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed. Right? The church has from the beginning publicly confessed he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and from there he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now, by saying it's neglected, I certainly don't mean that it's fully ignored or that we have no sense of its importance. But it's underserved. (laughs) Um, It can sometimes seem like a sort of footnote, which really adds nothing to the resurrection. Just sort of, Jesus is finished, he goes back now. One practical way to see this is to ask yourself about the church year. In in the church year, Christmas, and then say Good Friday and Easter, so the, the Lord's incarnation, and then the cross and resurrection, they get a lot more fanfare and attention than the ascension. Right, the ascension can often pass unnoticed. Right? And on this year, the ascension has, shall we say, the not so good fortune as to be buried by Mother's Day. I won't even ask where the center of gravity in your affections is. But the ascension is an immensely rich practical reality for our lives. That's what I hope us to see this morning. That it's not only a rich theological theme, but it's a practical reality that touches down in our lives in a profound way. High theology is highly practical. And hopefully we'll get a glimpse of that before we're done. I'm going to be using the Hebrews 9 text, the New Testament uh, lesson, and referring to a few other texts and making two points which are on the back inside of the bulletin, ascension and redemption, and then ascension in heaven. So first, I want to talk about Jesus' ascension and redemption. We're all quite familiar, I think, with the theme of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice in the book of Hebrews. right? It's the central or a-central dominating motif of the book. We all know Christ To review briefly, unlike in the Old Testament, he's both the victim, the sacrifice, and the priest, the offerer. And his sacrifice, unlike all the Levitical sacrifices, doesn't need to be repeated. It's once for all. It has an eternal, everlasting validity and power. Notice this in verse 27 and 28 of of our text from Hebrews 9. It says this, Just as the people are destined to die once, And after that, to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. So you have that death, that judgment-bearing death, and its infinite superiority to any Levitical sacrifice. That once-for-all reality is celebrated in the book of Hebrews. And yet, yet, it is not, as grand as it is, It is not, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, the main point of the book. It is not the main point of the book. And to get to the main point, notice verses 19 and following of our text. They say that when the old covenant, the covenant at Sinai was made, Moses had to sprinkle blood all over the place. sprinkles blood on the book. He sprinkles blood on the people, but it says he also had to sprinkle blood on the tabernacle and on all the vessels used for worship. So that whole earthly tabernacle that belonged to the wilderness people was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice when Moses made the covenant. Now Hebrews also tells us something very important and it's germane to the ascension, it tells us that that earthly tabernacle is patterned after, or it's a copy of, the heavenly tabernacle. That Moses made the earthly tent after the pattern he saw when he was up on Mount Sinai face to face with God. So there's a sort of shift that happens here for Christians. Heaven is the basic reality. It's the realm of absolute truth. And that truth is projected down or reflected into the earth. Heaven shapes history. We think and move from heaven down. And so the Old Testament tabernacle is a shadow or a copy of a heavenly tabernacle. And our text this morning, from Hebrews 9, the first verse, verse 11, you can see that this heavenly tabernacle is called greater than the earthly tabernacle, more perfect. More perfect, because it's not made with hands, the text says. It's not of this creation. That's relatively straightforward, but there's something somewhat surprising in this Hebrews 9 reading. You can see it down beginning in verses 23. We're told there that if Moses, if this earthly tabernacle had to be sprinkled with all this blood, then the heavenly sanctuary which Jesus entered, also has to be purified with the better sacrifice of Christ. Now, this is, I think, new territory for us. And we're told that Christ has done this because Christ entered not into some earthly tent or tabernacle made with hands, but he entered into the heavenly sanctuary. The text says he entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on your behalf. And so, what is happening in the ascension is that the heavenly sanctuary, and that means your communion with, your access to the living God, is purified and opened up and made accessible. The new covenant is fully inaugurated because Christ appeared there, in heaven, and he presents his sacrifice, his blood, to the Father. Now, Here it's important to remember the central act of Israel's public life, its sacrificial life. And that is namely the Day of Atonement. You could read about it in Leviticus 16. It's the center. It's a yearly festival, but it's the center of its priestly, sacrificial existence. And what we see there is that the atoning act, the slaying of the animal, the shedding of the blood... That act is not complete or finished until the priest takes that blood and goes into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles that blood before the face of God on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That is what Christ has done as your ascended priest. He has taken the blood sacrifice which he offered on earth. And he takes it and purifies the heavenly holy of holies. Prepares it so that in him you can enter it. And you know, this is alluded to in a famous passage in Hebrews 12, which says that you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And do you know what the text in Hebrews 12 says next? And to the sprinkled blood. That blood that was poured out on Calvary, which is now taken by Jesus into the heavenly tabernacle and sprinkled there before the face of God. That blood applied in that sanctuary opens your access to God. And without this action of your ascended priest, you would not be saved. The text here in Hebrews 9 says, in this entrance, Jesus has secured eternal redemption. This is a remarkable statement. Christ takes his own blood, not not literally, of course, but he presents his own atoning sacrifice. And he enters this heavenly tabernacle And that action of Jesus on your behalf secures your eternal redemption. Without it, you would not be saved. So the ascension is not a nice footnote to the cross and the resurrection. Please understand this. The ascension is a saving action. It's what makes the whole atoning work of Jesus effective because it presents that blood in the heavenly sanctuary. Your salvation is secured By Jesus' ascension and his ongoing appearance there now on your behalf. Right? We heard that sung in our hymn of preparation. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Where is this occurring? In the heavenly sanctuary where that blood has been applied. Forgive him, O forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. The ascension is a saving act, as grand and as magnificent as the sacrifice of Christ is. It is this heavenly, saving, ascended ministry of Jesus that Hebrews 8 speaks of as the main point of the book. It would do us no good to have a risen Jesus wandering around in Jerusalem somewhere. It would be of no value. You know what? Even if you could have a risen Jesus setting up some sort of massive command center in Jerusalem, and from there sending the Holy Spirit to fill everybody's hearts, it would still be deeply deficient because it wouldn't bring you to God in this heavenly sanctuary face to face with the Father. And that's what the atoning sacrifice is meant to do. And that brings us to the second point, the ascension and heaven. So in entering this heavenly tabernacle, Hebrews 9 verse 24 tells us Christ enters heaven itself. Heaven itself. Heaven should be thought of as a created place. It has creatures in it and angels. It has the spirits of righteous men made perfect. It has the human body and soul of Jesus. It's an unseen realm, but it's deeply real. Right? Part of the difficulty with this for us, I think, is that our imaginations think of heaven as a flighty, unreal, wispy, ephemeral place. And the book of Hebrews and the whole New Testament conceive of it as a realm of concrete, thick, deep reality that determines all other reality. It is the locale. Heaven is the locale of the heavenly Mount Zion, the location of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And in heaven, angels and departed saints gather in Christ And they worship God face to face. And do you know what Hebrews 12 also tells you? It says, to that place, to that place, that heavenly Zion, that city, you have come. The ascension, it not only secures your salvation, it means that in Jesus... You're in Jesus, right? That means in Jesus you've already come by faith to heaven. Where is Jesus now? He's in heaven, bodily, right? Having reached the end of his human his destiny, his calling, his vocation, which is face to face communion with his Father in the bond of the Spirit, in embodied. Heavenly resurrection glory in the heavenly tabernacle. So I want to talk about the implications of this for Christian worship and then for Christian life more generally. So first for Christian worship, Hebrews also tells us that Jesus is now a minister in the heavenly sanctuary. I mean, he's not just, he, he's, he's not just standing there presenting a sacrifice to the Father. He's doing ministry. And the word for minister that Hebrews uses is that Jesus is a liturgist. He leads our liturgy from the heavenly sanctuary. This is very important because it means that Jesus not only receives worship from us, of course Jesus receives worship from us, but it means that he's the leader of our worship unto God. He's He's the pastor, if you will, in heaven, taking the worship of all the saints on earth and presenting it to God. He appears before God, Hebrews says, on your behalf. The sacrifice that he offered, he presents, and thus he intercedes for us. And this means that our prayers depend on his intercession. There could be no Christian prayer without the ascension. None. His perpetual ministry there grounds our our mere ability to pray. But there's much more than this. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus ascended and crowned with glory. It says he worships in the midst of the congregation. Listen to these words from Hebrews 2. He is not ashamed to call you and, and me, brothers and sisters, saying to the Father, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation... Now, this is the ascended Jesus talking to the Father, saying this, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is astonishing. This is Jesus as your elder brother, as fully man, worshiping with you in the congregation. Worshiping his Father. Calvin says this means that Christ is the chief conductor of our hymns to God. I've often done this in the past, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to suggest a little mental exercise in worship that we need sometimes to turn Jesus around in our mind's eyes. So it's not just we have a divine Jesus up there and we worship him from here. That's true. That's true. But that's not simply what's going on. right? As if we had no mediator in worship. Jesus is our mediator, our forerunner, our pioneer. We follow him into the sanctuary. We kind of shelter behind him. And so I often suggest that you should turn Jesus around in your mind's eyes and see him as man worshiping the Father and see yourself coming in behind him. Underneath the shadow of his wing, he's your forerunner and your pioneer. And then you worship God with him and in him and through him. And this is quite liberating and comforting it also delivers us from thinking we have to worship without a mediator to help us in our worship. But it means that Jesus ascended. He takes all of our, you know, all of our defective and our cold and our wandering and our, our, our distorted prayers and worship. And he perfects it in himself. Our praise and our prayer. And he presents it to his father. It's a glorious thing. The ascension is critical. Indispensable for Christian prayer and Christian worship. So, I want to talk now about the ascension in heaven with respect to the Christian life in general. So, Hebrews says, just alluded to it, that Jesus is your pioneer, your forerunner. And you know what this means it means that his destiny is your destiny, the forerunner brings you to where he is. Right, This is simple enough, and he is in heaven. Right, the book of Hebrews describes the whole ministry of Jesus as bringing many sons to glory. Remember what Jesus prays in this high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, Father, I want those who you, whom you have given me, I want them to be where I am and to see my glory. Jesus' ascension begins to bring that to pass for you. It begins to bring you to where he is. Now, at this point, you should be thinking something like this, I think. That's preposterous. I mean, it's a preposterous claim. It seems to be self-evidently not true. After all, everybody's sitting right here. I mean, what could all of this wispy talk about being in some other realm with Jesus possibly mean? How could anyone take this kind of talk seriously? Perhaps if you haven't thought that, you haven't been scandalized enough by this language and how utterly shocking it is. But it's, beloved, it's the basic Christian claim. There's no Christianity without this. Let me put it a slightly different way. The ascension wrenches you out of this age. It lifts you up and out into heaven itself where Jesus is. Again, that seems ridiculous. Now, it does it by faith. And not yet by sight, to be sure. Not finally. But really, really, you have come, Hebrews says, to your everlasting destiny in Jesus' ascension. Don't let anyone say something like this to you. Well, in principle, we've come to Mount Zion. But in reality, we're really still living in this earth, in this age. You know, in some sort of mysterious way. No. The New Testament claim is you have really come. Actually, not fully, that's true. Not by sight yet, that's true. But by faith you have really come to this heavenly place in the ascension. The ascension lifts you out of this realm. And then it roots your life, all of our lives. The ascension roots our lives now, not later, but now. And all of our lives, not some of it. It roots it in heaven. When you see the ascension, you should think, ah, that roots my life there. This is, I think, the missing ingredient in virtually all Christian experience. Whatever we have, it seems to be shrunk down to belong to this age. We might believe in heaven. We might be going to heaven at the end. We might get assistance from heaven now. But heavenly existence is another thing altogether. Now, I want to try and persuade you that this is just basic. Every in Christ statement in the New Testament reflects this reality. Every in Christ statement to be in Christ is to be in the sphere or the realm where Christ is, is to be in the ascended Christ and thus to be with Him. In heaven, This is why Ephesians 1, the grand book of being in Christ, Ephesians, opens. The book opens and says, we have every last blessing with Christ in the heavenly places. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is why Paul says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And he means to live is union with the ascended Christ. He says in Colossians, Christ crucified, raised, and ascended is your life. Is your life. And thus the ascension should produce a profoundly heavenly-minded people. The whole substance of Our lives, the mystery of your interior being, your will, your intellect, your desire, your passions is drawn not from earth. The ascension tells us, but from heaven, not from this age, but from the age to come. This is what it means to say that the ascended Christ is our lives. Notice how different this is from saying something like this. That the ascended Christ is first in my life. Statements like that are protecting the my life. They're keeping it in this age and they're using Jesus as an accessory. A highly valued accessory to be sure, but an accessory. The claim of the New Testament is not that Jesus is first in your life. The claim of the New Testament is not that your whole life is centered on Jesus. The claim of the New Testament is not that Jesus helps you mightily in your life as you live it in this age. The claim of the New Testament is that the risen and ascended Christ is your life. That your existence is identical to his existence in heaven. Now, we can see that this is a radical claim. I mean, it's almost impossible to move from the New Testament to our own experience and not see the gap. It's because you are united to the ascended Christ that the New Testament repeatedly talks to us in this manner, but we're dull of hearing. So Paul says something like this. You have died. Now get this. This is maybe the whole sermon distilled into a a small glass. You have died, and your life, where is it? Hidden. Where? With Christ, in God. What's the implication, Paul says? Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth, because you have died. I mean, think of the initial act of the Christian faith, which we shall soon celebrate. Baptism. The first thing that happens to a Christian is they die. They are displaced. They are uprooted. It's not a fake death. It's not some sort of mystical death that floats off in some other spiritual realm. It's death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. So at the beginning, Christianity is displacement from the age and union in the age of the resurrection. This is why Jesus says to us we are not, we are not to store up treasures on earth, but we are to store up treasures in heaven. Because wherever your treasure is, there shall you find your heart. And your heart cannot be in two places at once. That's why Jesus preaches the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom which comes from heaven. And the kingdom which, having impacted this world, leads us back to heaven. That's why Jesus can say that the reward of the righteous is great. In heaven. The disciples go out, they cast demons out of people, and Jesus says, do not rejoice that you cast demons, or that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. It is why, Paul says, in this tent, in this body, having just a taste, just a little tiny taste of this reality, having the first fruits of the Spirit, Paul says, we groan, longing, sighing, to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. This is a little diagnostic test for us, beloved. How much groaning do you hear? I mean, there's a beehive of Christian activity in most churches. There's zero groaning. The ascension Causes groaning people. And only dislocated people groan. Right? This heavenly existence is why the Apostle Paul can say something like this. Our citizenship. Notice, not one of your citizenships. Your citizenship is in heaven. From which we await the appearing of a Savior. Now it's true, we have obligations to states and families and communities in this age. But the Bible actually never says you have two distinct citizenships. You have one citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your citizenship, theologically, is where you reside. It's your residence. It's your fundamental place, your location. It is where you are located when God takes his census. And that is in heaven. Because you are in Christ, and that's where he is. And so this is why the New Testament repeatedly calls us strangers, and aliens, and pilgrims. It's why Hebrews 11 commends exiles who are looking for a better country who don't have an earthly, lasting city, they desire a heavenly one. The language is so pervasive and so radical, we've domesticated it. Like we don't really even actually hear this language. Do you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7? He says this, and this gets at the shock of this. He says, let those who have wives live as if they had none. Let those who buy and sell, who have to engage in economic activity, be as if they did not engage in economic activity. Let those who have to deal with the world, he says, be as if they did not deal with it. That's the kind of holy detachment that this is producing. It's such a shocking text that people don't know what to do with it. Let those who celebrate Mother's Day... I'll let you guys finish that i let right. you finish it. We have a hope, and it's because of the ascension that we have this hope. Paul says, you've, in the gospel, you've heard of a hope stored up for you in heaven. Right? Peter uses the same language. Through the gospel, you've heard of a living hope, an inheritance reserved in heaven. And we wait. The ascension is why we wait for his son from heaven. We see at the end of the Bible the city to which we've already come. We see that city descend and come down out of heaven from God. So I want to persuade you and exhort you. Your eternal salvation, but also our piety, our prayer, our worship, our whole orientation as human beings... Is shaped and secured by the glory of the ascended Christ. He has appeared in heaven, in the heavenly tabernacle, on your behalf, for you. And in Him you have come. You have come to that heavenly city. And yet you wait. We wait for the day of His appearing. You can see that in verse 28 of our text. We wait for the day when faith gives way to sight. Because this Ascended One, and we saw this in the Acts New Testament reading as well, the Ascended One is the coming One, who will indeed bring us to share in His face-to-face communion with His Father in glory. Glory be to God for the ascension of Christ. In it lies your whole life, your security, your hope. Amen.